Well, once again, I am excited about what I'm preaching. If I'm not, if I'm ever not excited about what I'm preaching, I'm just going to dismiss you and you can go on home. Amen. <laughs> because I always feel like, man, this is so important today. If I could just crack open a few heads and pour it in, it would be so good. But I really do believe the mysteries of God, which is a series we're in, is hugely important to our success in life. You know, God said it's given unto us, if we're believers, to know the mysteries of the kingdom. A mystery is defined by Strong's, no, W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary as being something that is not profitable to natural understanding. It requires revelation of God. And there are, uh, I was going to say, let's see, there are a dozen mysteries that we're going to teach on, specifically called mysteries in the New Testament. The whole Bible is a mystery to them that are without. But there are a dozen different mysteries talked about in the New Testament that suggest to me, because even in some spots it says, don't be ignorant of this mystery, suggesting to me that these are understandings that even we as the body of Christ are going to have to go after. It's just not gonna fall on our head like a ripe apple out of a tree. <clears throat> We're gonna have to you know, do the reading, studying that gives us the base of knowledge for, for God to reveal to us, the meaning to, uh, and we're gonna have to pray and lean on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit uh, for revelation of these mysteries. And so there's 10 or 12 of them that we're going through. I've been through eight of them so far. We've got four more to, four more to go. Uh, last Sunday, we started the mystery of the rapture. So let's uh, turn to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And we'll read a little about the rapture. And it starts here by saying what I just mentioned to you. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that means have already died biologically. Of course, as a believer, they're spiritually alive. So they're referred to as being asleep. That you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Meaning that if you don't understand what he's getting ready to tell us, that he doesn't want you to be ignorant of, then you'll be no different than others out in the world that have no hope. The word hope means confident expectation. They're just sort of being battered around, you know, by the circumstance of life. But he says he doesn't want you ignorant of this. And that's sistren as well as brethren, I might add. Sometimes, no, I won't say that. <laughs> I would say that. I was going to say that sometimes the cistern have a little more problem in this area than we do, but it's not true, I realize. Come on, laugh a little bit. <laughs> At any rate, when he says don't be ignorant, that doesn't mean just, you know, you don't have a, a, uh, an IQ high enough to comprehend. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're just absent certain knowledge. The word, you know, the word used in the definition Strong's gives us of this is disinclination. Ignorant means to ignore. That's the root word, to ignore. So ignore by disinclination. You're not really inclined to pursue this. Why would that be? 
You just rather ignore it because it kind of defies natural human logic. That's very often the reason people aren't really inclined to go down this path because it might make them look a little silly to other folks that don't know the word at all. It's the only reason I can think of. But he says, don't be ignorant. Don't ignore this. Don't be disinclined to gain understanding of this. And uh, the next verse goes on to read, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them, with him. Next verse. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or go before them which are asleep or who have already died. Means they're going to go before we do. Next verse. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Keep it going. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the rapture. This is a stretch of all natural understanding. There isn't any rationale or logic that can be used, you know, in a mostly secular society these days uh, that could make this worthwhile to someone. But he says this is the way it's going to be. This isn't some sort of metaphor for a gradual change into the millennial reign of the Lord. This is in a moment, in an eye blink of time, the twinkling of an eye, it says, that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, those that have already died and gone home to be with the Lord, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. That is a fact. And for this to become our blessed hope, our great hope, you know, and that's vitally important. The word hope, again, means confident expectation. And the word refers to the coming of the Lord as that blessed hope, that great hope, that ultimately will anchor your soul in the midst of the worst storms imaginable in this natural life. Things can get really dark, really bad, but this, if it's settled in your heart, this is something the Lord has revealed to you as truth and to be a fact of your life, then that anchors your soul against just about anything negative that comes. Your mind, your will, your emotions, they're not going to go nuts. You're going to be calm. You're going to be sure and steadfast, no matter what natural circumstance might do. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 51 for a moment. We see more about the, um, the rapture. Calls it again a mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. It has to be revealed by the Lord for you to really... Embrace this. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. And it's talking about this generation that saw the regathering of Israel, all of these things we're going to see. And of course, that happened in 1948. I was around for that, so anybody born after me is included in this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, 
and we shall be changed. Next verse. In a, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. The final enemy to be put underfoot is death. The sting of death has been removed because we know we are eternally alive unto God. But death itself will be swallowed up at this moment in victory with the rapture of the church. Now this, you know, is a part of our preparation for the will of God for our lives in the eternal ages to come. Somehow or other, we think, well, we, we just need to know about the will of God while we're on this earth. No, this is just, this is the preliminary. This is boot camp. This life is but a vapor. We're here to learn some things that are going to be needful for us in the eternal ages to come. The laws of faith and the law of love and the things that we learn about <coughs> that we think oftentimes are for this life. No, it's preparation for the eternal calling that we each have and that we'll talk a little more about. The changes that we're going to experience point toward that eternal calling. So we'll talk for a moment about some of these changes. This corruptible needs to put on incorruption. This mortal needs to put on immortality. Well, I guess the first thing we see is that anything that corrupts God's creation personified in your life, that needs to change. So whatever it may be, it could have been you know, a sickness, a disease that has become chronic. It could be a genetic predisposition. It could be anything that the natural world uh, would see as, you know, uh, something that has inhibited your quality of life or ability to realize the life you'd like to have. Corruption most usually takes the form of sickness, a disease, or infirmity in our bodies. Of course, our thinking is often corrupted uh, by lies and distortion and deception, viewpoints other than the Word of God. Uh, our soulish man, our feelings, our emotional capacity can be corrupted by the force of fear and anxiety and stress. A lot of ways that our lives are corrupted, and that's all going to disappear. All of that will be part of what is gone. You're going to look in the mirror and you're not going to believe how good looking you are. I mean, all of those wrinkles and spots and blemishes and bald spots and pot bellies and all of that's going to be gone. I mean, and this is the way the word reads. Anything that has corrupted the beauty of God's creation, who is you, is going to be replaced by incorruption. You're going you're gonna to look like Jesus. You're going to be young again, but not so young that you're dumb. You're going to be... That just sort of sneaked out. I apologize for that. You know, um, ignorance is, normally doesn't have a lot to do with youth, but anyway. <laughs> I better quit while I'm ahead here. 
But, you know, I mean, we, we are going to be so transformed that you think about this and you can't help but get excited about it. You're going to look good. You're going to feel good. You're going to be filled with a self-image that God created you to have, the image and likeness of Jesus Christ himself. All of these points of corruption in your life will be changed. And you'll put on immortality. Christianity is the, you know, I mean, there are a lot of philosophies and religions out there that teach immortality of the spirit. Well, we are already spiritually alive unto God. If we've been born again, that's not a problem for us. But we are the only group, the only people on this earth that teach and believe in the immortality of the body, not just the spirit, but the body. And it has to do with your eternal calling. It really does. In this universal creation, God made everything uh, subject to physical law. That's the temporal arena that we live in. And in order to function legally in that arena, you need to have a body. That's why he says that anyone like Satan who entered through another channel other than childbirth and gained a physical body is a thief. They're a thief, a robber. They sneaked into this deal. For us to operate legally in God's creation as a spiritually alive human being, we have to have a body that is immortal that will go along with our spirit. That's why angels can't legally function uh, in this earthly arena. The fallen angels have to possess someone. They have to access a physical body uh, by subterfuge. Uh, otherwise, they can't function. And so, you know, for us to function in the realm of the spirit, which is part of the challenge, we have to be spiritually alive, but we also have to be physically alive. And, and uh, you know, we'll examine that in a little more depth. There are things about this body that we're going to have, uh, and it's called glorification. We're going to get a glorified body at the rapture. And the place to look to really understand the capabilities of a glorified body would be to Jesus. He is the first fruits of those to come. The rest of us are the ones that followed. If you're a believer and alive in him, then we will be resurrected physically just as he was. And what we see his physical body able to do gives us insight into what our physical glorified bodies will be able to do. I mean, stuff that really is, you know, we probably didn't see at all, but we've gotten glimpses in the scripture. Uh, I mean, his body, after he was raised, could walk through walls or doors that, you know, the natural world was... Uh, provided no impedance to his movement. Uh, that body was not inhibited by the physical arena. Uh, we also know that that body uh, had the ability to move through time and space at uh, a rate probably approaching the speed of thought, I've heard it said. Um, we see Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father in front of 500 of his disciples that he told to go wait on the endowment of power. And he's being uh, taken up into the clouds. They are watching him leave, and he's moving to the right hand of the Father. 
Now, if you understand how the word uh, needs to be rightly divided, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then later, he created man in his image and likeness to occupy the earth. That would apply that heaven is a planet also. I see, I, when I say that, I always see a few people go, kind of like that. But really, this is the case. I mean, we have to understand that heaven, which is God's dwelling place, isn't a nebulous figment of your imagination somewhere out there in the never-never land. It's a real place. And because he put the man created in his image and likeness on the planet Earth, we need to assume that heaven is a twin planet to Earth. It's very much like the Earth is. And so that means that Jesus is heading to a literal place to, in order to be at the right hand of the Father that has to be many light years away. And so for him to still not be in transit, for him to be at the right hand of the Father, he has to have been able to get there like the speed of thought or something, much faster than the speed of light. And so it's important that we see our glorified bodies will have the ability to traverse great, uh, uh, you know, spaces and distances so fast that it's like the speed of thought. This is what your body's going to be like. I mean, if Lynn wants to go shopping, all she has to do is think about it and she's there, you know? <laughs> Give us more ideas. Uh -huh, yeah, all right, okay. Anyway, so, uh, and this all has to do with our eternal rulership, our ruling and reigning with Jesus for an eternity. If we understand anything at all about our eternal calling, it would be to know that everything we've experienced on this earth is preparation for that eternal calling. That's the big show. This is just called a vapor in time, an eye blink in time. It's almost like you might say it's a boot camp uh, to be a part of the army of the Lord. And we learn how we do battle with the enemy. And of course, uh, you know, that's going to stand us in good stead in the eternal ages to come. Now on planet Earth, uh, you know, there will be no more evil. Uh, after the final consignment of Satan to the lake of fire, um, this earth will be purified by fire uh, to be purged of all of the corruption that man's habitation here in a fallen condition has left to purify the earth so it's made ready for God to take up residence with his man. And then the new Jerusalem the capital city of the planet of heaven, and where your, uh, you know, eternal habitation will be, your house, your mansion, whatever you want to call it, where you originate uh, your daily effort will be in the new Jerusalem, all of which is to be replant, replanted or repositioned on the planet earth so God can spend eternity with his man with his creation. And so, essentially, in preparation for that 
um, that day that God takes up residence on the planet earth, there will be a purification by fire of all that is on this earth. And, uh, and then, you know, um, we, although we will live in the new Jerusalem, in the capital city of God, on the mountain of God, where the Lord has gone to prepare our eternal habitation, that isn't where our calling will be fulfilled. It's where we live. But the earth will be, in terms of its stewardship, on behalf of God at that point, will be the Jewish uh, responsibility. The children of Israel. For those of you who thought the old covenant was gone, was no more, you need to read your Bible. Because God called it an everlasting covenant. And it's replacement theology, which is a huge deception that I'll be talking about in more depth at a later time, says that the church has assumed all of the responsibilities and plans that God had for the Jew. Not so. They're referred to as the sands of the sea, meaning that they are the earthly seed of Abraham, the natural seed of Abraham. This is where their calling will be realized when the, the world moves into the millennial reign of the Lord, there are going to be a lot of people living on this earth that don't even know that there was a tribulation. They were too far removed from it. There are going to be others that don't know the Lord has returned. Uh, those that go into the millennium will not be those with a glorified body. The church will be out of here. These will be people that uh, as a result of the judgment of the living nations which occurs right after the defeat of the Antichrist, uh, the judgment of the living nations based on how nations have treated the apple of God's eye, the nation of Israel on this earth. Their treatment of Israel, not the fact that they would be saved or born again, they will not be. Otherwise, they would have gone with the church and have glorified bodies. These people go into the millennium on the basis of how their nations how they allowed their governments, their representatives to treat the Jews, the brethren of Jesus. And so that's how the nations will be, or the earth will be populated during the millennium. And, you know, uh, there'll be no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven, but not so on earth. Uh, reproduction isn't necessary for those that have glorified bodies. We live eternally. Those living on the earth will need to reproduce, both to replenish the earth that has been, whose population has been cut by more than half as a result of the tribulation period, uh, but to, you know, uh, to sustain, you know, that growth, uh, marriage and having children will still be a part of life on this earth. There will not be sickness or disease because during the millennium, there will be trees of life lining the broadways of God that they have to partake of on a regular basis in order to sustain divine health. So don't get confused about the millennial reign. We won't even be here. I mean, we'll be living here, but our calling is eternal. And uh, the Jews will be the ones that convey the good news to all the inhabitants of the earth that the Lord is in charge in Jerusalem, encourage their interaction or uh, participation in this um, millennial reign with him. 
But for us, we're going to be stepping into our eternal calling. The Jews will take care, or the children of Israel, the people of the old covenant, uh, you can view them as the Lord's honor guard on this earth. Uh, you know, that's not our calling. They are the sands of the sea, the natural seed of Abraham. We are referred to, if we be in Christ, we are also the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And I believe we're the stars of the heavens. So we have the two distinctions made, the sands of the sea, the stars of the heavens. In other words, our calling is not earth. Our calling is the universal creation. And of course, you know, um, we've learned a lot about the universal creation through science, and as time has passed, science isn't a bad thing. The Bible doesn't say to avoid science. It says avoid false science. God has given us the ability to be rational, logical human beings. He even says in Isaiah 1.18, come let us reason together. He gave you that rational ability. And it will lead you to correct conclusions if you begin with the right premise. Many people in the world, you know, they blow the Bible off. They don't see that as being the correct premise to begin the rational process from. If you do, as a believer, you have the ability to even have uh, a conclusion such as salvation come clear to you, according to Isaiah. So... Basically, um, so we are going to be going into the universal creation, which science has revealed to us, good science, has revealed to us as still expanding. The universe is still expanding. God said, let there be light. God is light. His presence began to flash through the void of infinity I don't care if you call it a big bang or not. That's when it all began. And as his presence flashed through the void of infinity, it brought new creation into existence. And it is clearly a fact of science that the universal creation, the universe, is still expanding at a rate approaching the speed of light, even at this moment. And to suggest, when you consider that we live on a planet revolving around a single sun, which is one of billions of suns that populate the Milky Way galaxy. And when you consider there are billions of nebula or galaxies out there, also populated by billions of suns, also with solar systems, you know, that are perhaps supportable of life. It is the supreme uh, demonstration of human arrogance to suggest that there are no other life forms in this universal creation. But it is a demonstration of the truth of God's word as well. Because he tells us there are other life forms. And I'm not just speaking of spiritual life, all of the different angels and uh, you know, kinds of angelic hosts there are, but there are winged creatures, other creatures that are winged and have four heads. I'd say they look a little different than we do. But God has trained us to be ambassadors for Christ and ministers of reconciliation. And we are told we're going to rule and reign with Jesus for an eternity, but it won't be over this earth. It'll be out there. That suggests some things to us that really ought to stir your pot, man, ought to get you excited, ought to get you turned on. This isn't just, uh, you know, a little 
story time with Matt moment. Let's know what this is. This is taking the things that the Bible tells us and trusting the rational capacity God has given us to give us the kind of glimpses into eternity that will be motivational to us and help us keep things in the big picture context within which they need to be kept. And so, you know, so we see other things in the word about the resurrection, that we're going to be raised in ranks, a military term. It's interesting how many military terms we see describing the body of Christ. But we're going to be raised in ranks. There are going to be groups of people raised together that I believe God has trained together. Why would he bring us up in the principles of his word and train us just to go serve somewhere else? I believe we're going to get raised together. I believe if you don't like my jokes, you better go find another joke teller real quick or you're going to be stuck with me for an eternity. <laughs> so you just, you just need to think about these things a little bit. We're going to be raised in ranks. We're going to be enjoying our mansions in the New Jerusalem on the Mount of God, <laughs> you know, uh, but we're going to be commuting to work because the earth isn't our eternal calling. I mean, you, you can see that just in the natural. And how many billions of believers since this all began? Uh, if we had to rule and reign with Jesus over the planet Earth, we'd each get about two or three square feet of terra firma to rule and reign over. Not so. There's a whole universal creation out there that we need to introduce to the one true God. We've been trained to do that. And have learned lessons of faith and love that are going to stand us in good stead in the eternal ages to come. So, the deal is this. You'll get up in the morning, uh, have a nice breakfast <clears throat> at your golden breakfast table, <laughs> and then you'll head out for work for that day, you and those that you're joined with, striving together, one heart, one mind for the faith of the gospel. You'll be raised in ranks. We will be. So we'll be heading out to our assignment. It might be some far out there galaxy, you know, uh, way, way out there with a planet and life forms we don't even know about. Yeah, but that's where we're going. We go there with the speed of thought, and we represent Jesus and the Lord. Uh, we exercise our ministry of reconciliation, bringing these created life forms into an awareness of and relationship with their creator, God. And then we come back home, uh, spend the night in our mansion, enjoy a bath in our golden hot tub before we go to bed, <laughs> and then have another day at it the next day. <laughs> I'm not making this facetious. I'm really not. I just want to expand your thinking a little bit. Because this is what the rapture is all about. It equips us for this day, for this occasion, for our eternal reigning, our eternal rulership with the Lord. Sometimes it's good to be sure we've got the big picture right of the end times. You know, I, I did a, a series on the big picture once using uh, a jigsaw puzzle 
2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle box top as the example. Can you imagine trying to fit 2,000 pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together without the benefit of the box top that shows you what the finished product is supposed to look like? It'd really be tough, if not impossible. Well, we need a big picture understanding to fit the puzzle pieces of our life in where they are meant to be. And so where the big picture is concerned regarding end times, uh, eschatology, I guess you could call it, which is the study of the end times, end of the world, end of humanity, whatever. But it's the day that we live in. Uh, so what is the big picture? What does the Bible teach about the rapture being the first event of the end of an age? The church age ends with the rapture when God takes the church out of the earth. has to happen that way before the next event, which is the seven-year tribulation period, also known as Daniel's 70th week, which is the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation. We talked a little bit about this last week. Not going to go back through that in a lot of, a lot of detail, but we can understand that um, we can understand Man, I lost my train of thought. That's getting to be uh, a little unusual here, but that's, that happens occasionally. I guess I would say, um, well, I can't remember where I was going with that. So I'll get back on this verse, and that'll uh, remind me of where I am. But so we understand that um, this life is but a vapor. It is to prepare us for the ages to come. Uh, that is our uh, eternal destiny. Um, so let's just talk about what happens. There we go. What happens in heaven and on earth to shape a big picture of the end time events that we need to have. Because that larger context of understanding really does make a difference in how we view the individual considerations of our life. Uh, to where things fit in that big picture of God. Well, so the rapture is the first event closing out the church age. The church is taken out so that that next seven-year period, the Jewish dispensation, can actually begin. The opening event of the seven years of tribulation, uh, or Daniel's 70th week, whatever you want to call it, is the revelation of the Antichrist. And he cannot be revealed until the hinderer of lawlessness, who is the spirit-filled church, is taken out of the way. So when the church is raptured, now the next phase on earth, which is the balancing of the scales of justice during that seven-year period of time, can occur. So what happens in heaven after the rapture? Well, we get to heaven. Uh, we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. That'll be the first place, in my opinion, because rewards have to be handed out for our life on this earth in order to move any further, since the rewards have to do with the eternal assignment. So the judgment seat of Christ comes when we get raptured. If you don't understand the word, that could seem a little bit intimidating, but it shouldn't. Uh, I mean, it's something that we have to do. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, 
You see that the word clearly says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And then, uh, you know, uh, if you want to understand that it is about rewards and not about judgment, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, which in verse 11 says, No other foundation can, can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. When you're born again, that's the foundation for your new life. The word goes on to say here, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, those are three options, or wood, hay, and stubble, uh, that's another option. It says, whatever, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. When you have gold, silver, precious stones, the fire doesn't consume it, it purifies it. When you have wood, hay, and stubble, the fire purifies it. So let's go to the next verse. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, that means it's categorized as gold, silver, precious stones, good things, things that are aligned with the word of God, he shall receive a reward. The next verse says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That's the wood, hay, and stubble. Those are the things we've done while on this earth that weren't consistent with the word of God. We're not judged for it because our judgment has already come at the cross of Christ. It's just burned up. Those things are burned up. It's wasted time that we don't get a reward for. Uh, because it says, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So you can see that the judgment seat of Christ is about rewards. It is not about judgment, penalties, or punishment of any sort. And of course, the, uh, you know, the next thing that would occur after the judgment seat of Christ in heaven would be the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is going on during the same time that the seven-year tribulation is happening back on earth. Uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb is simply a celebration uh, of the head being joined with the body the two coming together as one flesh. You know, it's interesting when he says in Ephesians, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall uh, be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. And that has the, the application of, of ref referring back to God's original creative uh, intent for man. He said when he made man, he created man male and female and called their name Adam. But it was just one body of flesh. That was who he gave dominion to. He took woman from Adam, uh, and because Adam was having trouble without, uh, without a little help, making it to the tree of life, obviously, or he wouldn't have partaken of the wrong tree. So God brought him woman to give him a little hand and referred to marriage as the step they can take to be one flesh again which means we can only come into the dominion and authority that God created you as a man uh, to operate in when we are one flesh with the person that we've married. That's a whole other subject, but then God says 
This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's talking about Christ and the church being joined together as one flesh, the head no longer being separate from the body, the two once again being made whole. That will occur at the rapture of the church. All of this stuff is so interesting and, and so neat to consider and think about. But I'm going to have to shorten this. I ran out of time last service and I'm running out again. So let me see where I want to shorten it. Anyway, the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs during that seven-year period of time. Let's see. All right, let's talk about events on earth. Uh, just before the rapture of the church, you know, there are a couple of things that the Word talks about that haven't happened yet and not, are not scheduled to happen in the tribulation period. One is the war in Ezekiel 38. It is not a war that occurs during the seven-year period of time uh, that we call the tribulation, certainly not the Battle of Armageddon. That's the biggie. Uh, but it is a war that is very unique in that it is clearly supernatural. Russia comes down uh, to take a spoil from Israel with her allies, Russia's allies, and God intervenes in a very supernatural way, so supernatural that even a natural man would have to acknowledge uh, there's something involved here that suggests there is indeed a God. And so I believe that war in Ezekiel 38 is a precursor to the great outpouring of the Spirit and the harvest that God wants to take because it'll make people aware of the existence of a God that obviously intervened on Israel's behalf. And so we see this, uh, you know, being an important moment in time. The war uh, prepares people's heart for the outpouring that James chapter 5 says is coming. The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. That's what he's waiting on. And so the former and latter reign together, as it says in the fifth chapter of James there, will produce the harvest that God is waiting for, a harvest of souls. So these are two things that have to happen yet on the earth before the rapture that haven't occurred yet. But then after the rapture, while we are at the judgment seat of Christ and enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, the tribulation begins to unfold on this earth. And I'm not going to go through an in-depth description of the tribulation period. Uh, you know, I've done that before, but we're not going to be here. So it doesn't seem that significant to me. There are points of interest, if you miss the rapture, that you would want to know about. Uh, because not everybody that says they're a Christian are going to go in the rapture. Contrary to what, you know, I've heard a lot of people preach. Well, if you're saved, you're going in the rapture. Heard a lot of other people preach, well, the rapture isn't literal. It's just a, you know, a metaphor for the transition to the millennial reign. Both of those are nuts <laughs> viewpoints. They contradict uh, really what, what the Word does tell us. And so basically... Um, you know, so we're out of here. The tribulation begins. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of interesting things about it. We probably will talk about a little uh, maybe next time I'm in the pulpit. 
but ultimately it is consummated with the Antichrist's defeat at the Battle of Armageddon. And the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at that point. And then it says that Satan is chained up and put in the bottomless pit for a thousand years until he has to be released again. And you would, thought, you would wonder about that. What would anybody want to release him for? We're going to enter a millennial reign with no evil influence. With Satan chained up in the bottomless pit, there'll be no evil influences anymore. But he has to be loosed at the end of the thousand years to see, see who he may deceive, yet deceive. You would think after a thousand years of no evil influence, nobody would be deceived. But this speaks to the strength of the carnal nature of man that has to be overcome. Because even without evil influence, selfish intent will take him down the wrong path more often than not. The loosing of Satan for one last time is to deceive those whom he may. It's all in preparation for the Lord's return or establishing his place of residence as being this earth. You know, purging, <clears throat> you know, uh, all, of the, all of the human um, undesirable elements that would have been easily influenced by evil, but even with evil gone, are still influenced by the selfish nature of a carnal man. And so uh, at the end of that little short period of time uh, where there is, you know, Satan is deceiving whom he may, there is one final defeat uh, at the end of which Satan and those that have followed his lead, are consigned to the lake of fire. There is something that will make an unbeliever's toenails curl, I, I would think, uh, called the great white throne judgment. I'm tempted to read it. I think I will. I think I will. Um, let's see. Let's take a look at uh, Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20. I didn't tell them about these verses. Well, I did. I guess I did. Well, this is, this is where the chaining begins. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. It says, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little while. He was loosed for a little while and then consigned for the last uh, time with the beast and false prophet and those that had followed his lead that he had influenced into the lake of fire eternally. And then in verse 11 of Revelation 20, I'm going to read you about the great white throne judgment. After that had occurred, it says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face 
the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. That's got nothing to do with us. We've already been at the judgment seat of Christ. And that was about rewards, not judgment. But all of the other dead, it says they're raised to stand before this great white throne judgment. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. You know, which is a, a hopeless cause. Man left to his own works in, an, in a sin-cursed earth where he had bowed his knee to Satan in the fall. Uh, his works never, never are going to bring satisfaction or reward. And verse 14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And after the great white throne judgment, we have the renovation of the earth by fire, which would be 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. Uh, no point in turning there because I'm out of time. Uh, but the earth will be completely renovated by fire. And then in verse 20, or verse 1 of chapter 21 in Revelation, after that renovation has occurred, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, which is a planet, remember. This is transplanting the dwelling place of God to earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. <clears throat> it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And the eternal ages began. Woo! <clears throat> this, is what, this is what we're on the verge of launching. We have been put here for such a time as this. We are the generations that will see all of these things fulfilled concerning the rapture and what we've just read about. Uh, we'll see this. Now, you think about that for a moment. We get to usher in the eternal ages to come. First, the millennial reign, and then the eternal ages to come. We get to see all of this stuff. You think about the Old Testament saints, what they would have given to be in our shoes. And yet we tend to complain about how hard things are. No, you've you got to have a paradigm shift. You're living in a day that should be the most exciting time you will ever experience in your life. Because at any moment, 
there's going to come a shout and a trump, and we're going to get caught up to meet our Lord in the air. Hallelujah.